Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can even earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome our host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. How you doing? Today, we're going to talk about a new device. It's actually a virtual reality system that is FDA approved. And yes, I said that FDA approved for chronic pain reduction. So yeah, pretty interesting stuff to help me kind of navigate all this uh, because I know something about treating pain, having been a pharmacist for about 30 years, but I'm nowhere near an expert. So to get an expert in and, and someone who uh, is, is another outside standing pharmacist I've known for many years and is an expert in treating pain. We'd like to welcome Dr. John Swagel to the program. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Uh, and, and welcome to all the listeners uh, as well. As Jeff said, my name is John Swagel and I'm a, a clinical associate professor at the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. And I practice up in Mason City, Iowa, which is a bit north in Iowa, uh, a little ways away from Iowa City. And uh, I practice site mainly is in, in family medicine, but I also work with Palliative Medicine Fellowship, and I work with Hospice of North Iowa, and so we, we certainly see our fair share amount of pain and dealing with end of life, but we also see pain quite a bit in our clinic, uh, what they would consider to be chronic non-cancer pain, which I think is what this virtual reality is, is, is really going to target, and so uh, welcome to the show, and I'm Jeff, I'm happy to be with you. Appreciate that, John. And yeah, yeah, Dr. Swigel is world-renowned, shall we say, is, is certainly legendary around here. Uh, yeah, you know, he's, he's well-known as, as an outstanding pharmacist and an educator. And again, you know, I don't know too many other pharmacists who, who have their finger on the pulse of how to treat pain as, as well as he does. So again, we really appreciate him coming along. So again, I'm I'm going to preface all this by saying when it comes to, to virtual reality, I'm a virtual dolt. I've never put one of those things on my head. I kind of got out of video games when arcades stopped being a thing in the late 80s, because yes, that's how old I am. Um, so that ought to tell you something. <laughs> I mean, I've seen videos of people wearing them and it looks very interesting and it looks like a good way for me to get motion sick. But I do realize that there are applications of these systems that goes far beyond just entertainment. And this is one of them. And so again, this is the system is called the Ease VRX system. So E-A-S-E-V-R-X system. And again, it is a prescription use. So it, it, it has to be you know ordered by a, a, a clinician, immersive virtual reality system that you uses cognitive behavioral therapy and other behavioral methods to help with pain reduction in adults with chronic uh, lower back pain. And, and the FDA indication is specific for chronic lower back pain, though my guess is there'll be other studies as time goes on uh, looking at other types of chronic non-malignant pain. I'm sure I don't have to go into a lot of background about how much we all deal with chronic non-malignant pain. Uh, certainly, it's, it's one of the most common reasons, as, as, as Dr. Swagel points out, that patients go to their primary care doctors as they do have chronic you know, non-malignant pain, often back pain or shoulder pain or knee pain or things along those lines. And unfortunately, you know, we, we learned the hard way in the opioid epidemic that that was probably not the best way to treat those patients. And, and so, you know, as a group of clinicians kind of backed away from that and, and unless we absolutely need to use it, but that leaves us a big, you know, basically hole in, in, in the treatment of this. And so, you know, uh, people take over the counter medications, obviously exercise, uh, you know, uh, uh, other mindful 
mindfulness things. And there are other devices, you know, um, um, those of you who work with pain know that, that sometimes transcutaneous electro electrical nerve stimulators or TENS units can sometimes be used for pain. So this isn't like the first, you know, device that, you know, has ever been considered to be used for this, but it's certainly a very unique and, and very innovative way to do this. So how does it work? Well, it employs the principles of cognitive behavioral therapy and other behavioral therapy techniques for the purpose of reducing pain and pain interference. It uh, has the, the, the standard, and I'm sure you've all seen the pictures of the VR headset and controller, and many of you may maybe done it yourself or have this at, at your own home. It also has a breathing amplifier that's attached to a headset that directs the patient's breath toward the headset's microphone, so that helps kind of reinforce deep breathing exercises. And then they just use a, a, a number of established principles in behavioral therapy intended to address the psychological symptoms of pain and aid in pain relief through a skills-based treatment program. So this isn't something that you buy at the store or, you know, get a prescription for and pick up someplace and just go home and turn, plug it in and start messing around with it. There's actually a, a treatment program associated with it. It consists of 56 VR sessions that are anywhere from two to 16 minutes in length, which are intended to be used as part of a daily eight-week treatment program. And again, they, they each use a, a variety of, of different sessions and, and different things they do to kind of help with this. And so again, you know, to me, fascinating and something I wouldn't have even thought would be possible is now again, FDA approved. The the study that got this device approved was published in February in the Journal of Internet Medicine. And again, that's probably not the highest level of journal in the universe, but it is a peer-reviewed journal. And again, it was enough, the data was enough, the FDA definitely gave it, gave it, gave it, it's okay to. So again, I, I read the paper a couple of times now. And, you know, what I really wanted to dive in, you know, was what some of these sessions were going to be about. So again, you know, you know, okay, well, you know, what exactly happens when they put on these headsets and, and get everything done? And that's where we're going to kind of talk a little bit about the study itself. Again, they looked at community-based uh, individuals with chronic lower back pain. They were recruited through things like chronic pain organizations, Facebook advertisement, things along those lines. They included patients, uh, men and women age 1885, uh, who had a self-reported diagnosis of chronic low back pain without ridiculous symptoms. Uh, they had to have that chronic low back pain for six months or more with an average pain intensity of four out of scale of one to 10 for at least a month. Uh, they had to be fluid in English willing to comply with study procedures, obviously, they had to have access to Wi-Fi, kind of makes sense, though that might be a barrier in some cases to, to people have uh, being able to do this. And of course, they had to have implicit de facto internet and computer literacy, which kind of makes sense. They excluded patients with a significant cognitive impairment, uh, patients who had a history of epilepsies or other sort of seizure disorders, migraines, anything else that that virtual reality may aggravate any medical condition predisposing to nausea or dizziness, because again, that might be considered one of the big side effects of this. People who have uh, any sort of problems with, with flashing lights or motion, people with vision or hearing impairment, makes sense, patients who cannot comfortably wear virtual reality, patients who had cancer-related pain. They did exclude, and this was actually in, in the study, the number one reason patients didn't actually get included in the study after screening was major depressive symptoms. Now, it makes sense. Uh, we know that if we're going to be using cognitive behavioral therapy, we know now, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that cognitive behavioral uh, therapy is, is a great way to treat depression, especially depression with anxiety. So it kind of makes sense that they wanted to exclude those patients, but I do, I do think that speaks a little bit to the generalizability of the study. If they had previously used a virtual headset for pain, um, if they were pregnant or planning to be pregnant, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, th those are, you know, pretty standard inclusion, inclusion criteria. And again, the only thing that, that struck me in, in reading the study was, was again, unfortunately, most chronic pain patients may very well have concomitant depression. And, and so that may speak a little bit to, to, to what happened. They then actually, when people were confirmed in the study, they mailed the equipment via post to the patients 
and, and basically the instructions on how to get it done. Now, you may say, how do they do the study? Well, it was a randomized, double-blind, uh, uh, controlled study. And you may say, well, how did they control things? What was the placebo? Well, they, for the, instead of placebo, they used a sham VR system. So again, it was the exact same system that the programs and, the, and what they were seeing and what they were, what they were uh, experiencing was different in the sham VR compared to the Ease VRX group. And so one was a 3D immersive skills training experiences. And the other, the sham VR was, was 2D. It was non-immersive. They weren't doing a lot of things. It wasn't interactive. In fact, they actually have a picture in the study and they basically just through the VR set, basically looked at pictures of wildlife and, and had music in the background. And that was really it. And so that was considered their, their, their placebo or their sham control. I'll give them credit. I think that's, that was probably the only way to probably pull something like this off and, and have it be controlled. So I, I think that was probably the best way to do that. And that certainly kind of makes sense. So again, they did these programs or, or, or sessions, essentially. And these sessions included things on pain education, and they did visual and voice guided lessons to establish uh, the rationale for the VR exercises and why this would help. And that makes sense. I mean, if patients aren't going to buy into it, you're probably going to have a harder time having this work. Then they did uh, sessions on relaxation and interoception. So patients, you know, would help them calm themselves, ground themselves, things like that. They did mindful escapes. These were high resolution, uh, 360 degree videos with therapeutic voiceovers, music, guided breathing, and sound effects to help relax and, and have kind of a relaxful session. They did pain distracting games help shift the focus away from pain and they did dynamic breathing exercises with the breathing in their headset so that was kind of a biofeedback training on helping them control their breathing and help with breathing exercises so again pretty interesting in my opinion they looked at a wide number of outcomes they looked at the pain duration pain intensity pain interference with activity mood sleep and stress and they used standard scales for all of this they looked at the pain catastrophizing uh, which is something that I thought would be one thing that would definitely help. Uh, we know that, and unfortunately, patients who, who who have chronic pain often get into this negative loop in their mind where they just think that everything is just going to go spiraling down and, and they can't control it. And they keep thinking how badly they want the pain to stop and it's never going to get better, never stop. And their life is is, is finished and things along those lines. And, and this is not just true in, with pain, it's true with a lot of uh, other mental health disorders as well. So that was one of the things they looked at. And I thought that was a, a pretty good thing to take a look at. They looked at the satisfaction with treatment. They looked at motion sickness and nausea, which apparently is called cyber sickness. Didn't know that. I'm one of those guys who can't even be in an IMAX theater without getting motion sick. So I suppose I'll probably have cyber sickness if I ever use any of these things. Uh, they also looked at, at over-the-counter analgesic medication use and opioid use data for the patients who were taking opioids. So again, very, very inclusive outcomes they wanted to take a look at. Their power uh, calculations, they assumed that they would need around 75 patients per group to detect a significant decrease in pain intensity based on previous studies that, that uh, people had done in, in other areas. Is. And to do that, they figured they'd need about, again, 75 patients per group. They ended up running 90 in case they had patient dropouts and things along those lines. The stats seem reasonable, and I won't waste everybody's time going through that. They ended up assessing about 1,500 patients. And, and again, the vast, vast majority of them were, about, in fact, 1,100 out of the 1,500 didn't meet the criteria because, again, of, of the exclusion for depression systems. But they ended up with the power that they needed to do this. They randomized 188 to the Ease VRX group compared to the Sham 
on the ER, VR group, and about 90 in each one. As far as baseline characteristics, a mean age was 51. The majority of patients were female. The majority were Caucasian. Most had some college or, or were college graduates. In fact, only 7% of patients were only high school graduates. So again, most at least had some college education. Most were working at least full-time or somewhere retired. And I think those are some of the biggies. As far as the pain analysis, most of these patients had had long-standing pain of over 10 years. Their average pain intensity and, it, and the pain interference with their life was pretty much right in the middle on scales of one to 10. I mean, it was five or 4.5 with just about everything. So these people were had pretty much what they would consider to be moderate pain and it, mod, and it interfered moderately with their ability to sleep, their mood, their ability to do activity and things along those lines. About 25% of patients were taking opioids and the mean morphine milliclam equivalent and that was actually 25. So there were some patients on much higher doses I see looking at that. That's kind of what they kind of the setup for the study. So, so we're uh, talking about a kind of a fascinating treatment for chronic low back pain, um, actually using virtual reality as a, a way to implement and augment cognitive behavioral therapy program to help with chronic pain. And we've been talking about the study that got this device approved and what they found is it worked. In fact, they found that in the primary outcome, pain scores actually significantly decreased uh, by, by the end of the, of the treatment days. Uh, when they looked at day 56 at end of treatment, they found that the average pain score in the sham VR group was four, while as the average pain score in the ease VRX group was actually 2.9 and it was statistically significant. They actually found that, that a significant number of patients, about 25% of patients had at least a 30% reduction in their pain and actually about 20 more percent of patients had a 50% reduction in their pain. And that seemed to be consistent throughout the entire study period. They also found, as you might imagine, that when your pain gets better, the pain-related interference with activity was better. The pain-related interference with mood and sleep was all significantly better. And the same with stress. Interestingly, they did not find a significant difference in catastrophizing. And I thought that was kind of interesting because I would have thought that would have been the one thing that, that would absolutely show a benefit here. But overall, they found that, that uh, other effects of mood and things along those lines were also beneficial. So basically, across the board, they found that this cognitive behavioral activity enhanced and augmented by the EASVRX system seemed to significantly improve amount of pain, duration of pain, pain influence on all sorts of activities of daily living, including sleep, not on everything, but quite a few. They found that most patients were able to engage pretty easily, that there wasn't a lot of questions or issues. And so that, that, I think that speaks to people who may not be quite as internet or, or technology savvy. Again, I might be one of these people who, you know, what button do I push and all that sort of thing. So that, that I think that's good to see. They did not see a significant decrease in, in the small number of patients who were on opioids. They didn't see a significant decrease in, in dose in those patients, though I'm not really sure, you know, again, it was a small number of patients. I'm not sure it was really designed to do that. And that, that might speak to a whole bunch of other issues that I'm not sure cognitive behavioral therapy with this can, can really help with. As far as side effects, about 20% of patients found that wearing the headset was kind of uncomfortable, especially if you're probably not used to wearing them. That doesn't surprise me. And about a 10% of patients did complain of nausea or motion sickness or this, again, cyber sickness, kind of interesting. So again, a fascinating study. And to help me kind of figure uh, this out and kind of say, okay, well, so where do we go in this? Again, I want to re-welcome re Dr. John Swagel to the program. So John, you know, can you tell us a little bit about cognitive behavioral therapy to our listeners and why it would help with pain? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Jeff. Happy to do so. You know, cognitive behavioral therapy, since we're both pharmacists, you know, it's not anything we ever dove into as far yep. as learning about it in, in, in school. And yep. so, 
so the concept with cognitive behavioral therapy, which is not done by pharmacists, I mean, it's typically done by therapists, clinical psychologists, people along those lines that are well-trained in this, in this field. There are five components really to cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, they look at exercise, pacing, relaxation, training, cognitive restructuring, and behavioral activation. And one of the things to think about with chronic pain is, is think of chronic pain as being a cycle. So pain kind of leads to decreased activity that then leads to negative emotions, leads to withdrawal, avoidance of, of activities that they like to do, uh, leading to disability, and then worsening pain. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. And the whole goal with cognitive behavioral therapy is to focus on function and quality of life. And, and they do this through goal setting and, and helping patients understand and modify their view of pain, which then increases their ability to cope with that pain and what essentially becomes a chronic disease. So it's something that's, that's very, very useful. And I think this article did a good job of kind of referring to one of, the, one of the problems with cognitive behavioral therapy, and that is access to care. In my neck of the woods, again, clinical psychologists are the main ones that I see doing this, but we don't have people who that is their sole practice. Uh, what we have, or we have psychologists that, or, or therapists that, that utilize cognitive behavioral therapy as part of their practice, and they may use portions of cognitive behavioral therapy, but it can vary depending on the provider. Right. Uh, and so the challenge really is getting access into seeing a, a clinical psychologist. Uh, we, have, we have wait lists right now and getting in could be several months. And so access to, to these, these specialists that help deal with this or, or work with cognitive behavioral therapy is really a challenge. All right. And that makes sense. I mean, and, and I mean, even before the pandemic, I'm sure the pandemic didn't help that at all. So I'm sure that the pandemic made that worse. And especially in rural areas, yeah, I have no doubt. I'm sure even here, it, you're going to, it's going to be a challenge to get into, to see someone who can help teach these, these methods. Um, so I think that's a great explanation. And, and so, you know, what's your opinion and, and, and thoughts on then this, this interplay between mental health coping and chronic non-malignant pain that you kind of alluded to? It certainly seems to me that that those all seem to be wrapped up together. It's, I, I think it's almost impossible for someone to have chronic non-malignant pain and not end up having some degree of depression or, or anxiety associated with it. So what, what do you think about that? Jeff, you're absolutely right. And this study kind of shows that, right? They eliminated what, 1,100 patients from the original 1,500 because of depressive symptoms. And, and I can't tell you time and time again, chronic pain and depression, they go hand in hand. And so so definitely there's a mental health component to it, which it makes sense really, because if you chronically have pain and you wake up every day with pain, it's not surprising one bit that you would have some depressive symptoms. Now, whether or not that leads to major depressive disorder right. is one thing, but you can still have some depressive symptoms. And so we definitely keep that in mind and have to work through that as well as the chronic pain component of it. Right. I, I agree. And so, and, and I think that's why, you know, it seems like some of the more successful, and I think, you know, in your work and with hospice and, and some of the family medicine stuff and palliative care, it certainly seems like the like palliative care practitioners seem to have that like totally in front of them, right? They realize that you can't just treat the, you know, pain and not treat these, co you know, co concomitant things without, you're just not going to be successful doing that. So I, I completely agree with you. So then again, we kind of turn to the study itself and the device. I don't know if you've had a chance to even see or, or, or try the device, or if you're a virtual reality guy, you like to using that or whatever, but what's your thoughts on the device itself in the study? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a great question. So, you know, the virtual reality concept, and this study does a good job of highlighting, I think, certain pain conditions, chronic pain conditions, uh, such as complex regional pain syndrome, headaches, migraines, fibromyalgia is a big one. I know this study was focused on chronic low back pain, but, but those pain uh, syndromes that they just describe or that they include, they tend to not respond to medications as effectively as we would like. So we're always looking for different approaches to manage pain. 
Now, the key thing, and I want the listeners to certainly understand this, especially for, for utilizing something like, like the EZPRX. This is true of multiple things. If patients enter these types of treatments, they have to be motivated to participate and they have to be willing to dedicate the time that is required. If they don't do that, uh, and we've seen this time and time again, where patients coming in looking for a type of a treatment or looking for a quick fix to, to their pain, and it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We have a, an integrative medicine physician up here who runs a fibromyalgia clinic, and, and she has said the same thing, that patients that don't participate or aren't willing to participate and maybe show up for one or two sessions, this is not for them. So it's very, very important. The other aspect I think that the listeners also need to, to understand is even cognitive behavioral therapy and the V's, the E's VRX, they will not, they are not designed really to take pain away. They're only designed to help cope with chronic pain in a way that allows functionality and improvement in quality of life. And, and so when we have these patients that come into the clinic, you know, our biggest endpoint that we're looking for is functionality because they will not be pain-free and we have to, they have to accept that and know that up front. And, and it's really looking at the the resiliency of the patient. So getting back to your question about the ease VRX and, and, and virtual reality and that concept, um, you know, it makes sense because it's another avenue we could, we could utilize perhaps. Uh, and, and some patients may, may find this to be very rewarding and, and just might change their life. And if that works for them, then perfect. We're all for it. Right. And, and I mean, you know, yes, while, I mean, I'm sure there's some minor issues with, with things. I mean, you know, you, you gotta love something that you, that, you know, you know, really you only have to get once, you don't have to continue to keep getting there's not sort of some sort of long term side effects or anything you know any any problems associated with it so i mean it's about as clean as, as you can get i mean you know especially compared to all the other you know medications that we use and you're right that's something that even in my world that you that we continually try to face is that you know patients are expecting to get zero on a scale of one to ten and we just have to say you know unfortunately that's not going to happen so how can we help you cope so you can do what you need to get done and and, and still have an have an enjoyable life and, and yep. so this this seems to be you know right along that so so we had talked a little bit before. So we don't know the cost of the of, of the device. It's, it's they did pick a they didn't like invent a VR headset and, and, and equipment. They actually picked one that was commercially available and they picked it for its low cost. Um, and so I mean, again, not knowing what the entire program is going to cost, but best as we can both tell, it sounds like it was about it's about three four hundred dollars for for the whole system. So again, you know that might be hard if insurances don't pay for it, and you never know what insurances are going to do. So that always is kind of irritating. But it seems to me this would be fairly cost effective. I can't think of too many other uh, devices, you know, a TENS device certainly is way more than that. And surgical interventions and all that are going to be way, way more than that. So, I mean, I would think this would be pretty cost effective. Yeah, no, I, I would think so as well. And just so the listeners know, I have absolutely zero vested interest in this whatsoever. Sure. And I'm like you, Jeff. I mean, I, I can't do the IMAX because it's just the, the motion aspect of it. I mean, I can, I can ride in the backseat of a car, but I cannot do these, these motion types of things because of the nausea. So, but absolutely, it's, uh, it, it's something that, that I think is out there as another option. And, and you know, it's not for everyone, but it, it certainly is, is something we could try. Absolutely. And, and again, you know, I mean, because the cost is so low and there's no real side effects, it's like, yeah, I mean, I certainly would say that a lot of patients who've tried a lot of other things is certainly would, would in my armamentarium to consider. So any last thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, just, just a couple of things for the audience, just so that they are aware, looking more at the study. So and, and Jeff, as you pointed out, there's, there's a couple of things with the study that, that do stand out, at least in my perspective. We already identified the depression component. The second thing is, you know, looking at the patient population, they, they studied uh, Caucasian women who, who, had, who were educated, 
fair number currently working. And, and that's an important point because women are the ones that do tend to seek out these types of treatments. Right. Um, I think that men are, are probably less likely to, to do so, not that they can't benefit from it, but, you know, men put on virtual reality. They want to, you know, see blood and guts and play games. That's <laughs> yeah, they want to go in space and yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, the other aspect of it is, you know, and, and Jeff, you already mentioned this as well too, about 10% of the people in the Ease VRX experience motion sickness. And keep in mind that they excluded people that had medical conditions predisposing to nausea or dizziness. So, right. you know, it, that's something that, that is real, that people can have motion sickness with things like this. The other aspect that I think is, is, is extremely important to understand, and Jeff, you also highlighted this one as well, is that lack of effect on, on the pain catastrophizing, because that really is what cognitive behavioral therapy is designed to do. Right. And so because this didn't have any effect on that, that was extremely surprising result of the study. Yep, but I overall, agree. I mean, I think, you know, if you have people who are motivated, people who are willing to utilize this and, and, and be open to different avenues of, of, of trying to help with pain from a cognitive behavioral therapy standpoint by using a device, then this might work for them. Um, and, you know, what we don't know, of course, uh, you know, we, we, we're kind of guesstimating on the cost. Uh, and insurance coverage. We also really don't have any long-term data. So I right. don't know what this is going to be like uh, down the road uh, as far as, you know, how, how beneficial it will be in long-term because this study was only eight weeks long. So, right. um, but if they have the device at home and, and it's another way to utilize uh, some of the tools that cognitive behavioral therapy gives to patients, then, then certainly this would be a, uh, an option for patients to look at. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, no I agree with you. I mean, yeah, yeah no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's one more thing in the armamentarium. And as you point out, don't have a lot to treat these patients a lot of times. So yeah, I think it's it absolutely should be should be considered. So well, I want to thank you, Dr. Swagel, for, for joining us. Again, your expertise, very much appreciated. Hope we can have you on sometime down the road with other topics in your area of expertise. Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to do so and, and appreciate uh, you allowing me the opportunity to come on today and, and, and join your program, Dr. Hall. And I think that, uh, you know, as we continue moving forward with therapies and different things that are out there, hopefully we'll continue discussing good topics and, and, and uh, come to some good conclusions. Sounds good. I appreciate it. Well, thanks very much. So uh, thanks everyone for listening to this episode. We will see you next week, but until then, remember time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Thank you for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes below and check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com. We curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine and then deliver it to you. Join today and connect your learning to practice.